Hey y'all, Alan here. And I won't bore you too much with an intro on this one, but this is the episode that we put out as the bonus episode so that you guys can hear the entirety of Barry describing our campaign from the very beginning with all the detail that he used in the original description without it edited at all. So here he is with describing what mana is and then going straight into describing our entire campaign. All right. So... Man, the easiest way to describe mana is the physical representation of NPC magic. And that's about as close as I can get. In a lot of fantasy games and settings, they tend to have this um, measure of your magical abilities. And mana in itself is amorphous for this reason that it can be used for many, many things, but it's an easy representation of a power level. Um, it's a great uh, it's a great intermediary as a as a measurement tool. And so one of the premises of this world is the blossoming industry of artificery. So as a character within this world, you don't have to spend your life dedicating yourself to understanding all the nuances of wizardry and be able to cast that spell you've always wanted to. You can just... Find a way to purchase an item that can manifest this effect. Manifest this effect from an artificer of high enough level that is capable of creating these. The premise of Levitica is that as um, as magic itself becomes more and more prevalent, society almost becomes more and more industrious. Right as this technology is created and used by single users eventually people figure out that there's not many there's not a lot that magic can't do as a whole and so these spells almost start replacing the mundane aspects of humanoid life and these cities begin to blossom and flourish as these um almost like arcane elysiums of just complete perfection but perfection in itself is inherently flawed and that is the premise of this campaign yeah that's so awesome like giving it the like like the dreams of those who wish to do good and finding where lofty goals can sometimes be full of holes right mm -hmm. like yeah. and that type of stuff can be really really hard to deal with and oftentimes it takes a whole village and when you try and do it with only like the people who like when you try and do it with lesser people or like not lesser people but a lesser amount of people it can oftentimes become very difficult so yeah all right well barry do you want to quickly give us um uh, any more information on the gist of how this specific setting works into the campaign that these players are working into so one of the first things I would have to bring up within this campaign, besides the prevalence of artificery within these, um, within these large cities, is secondly the presence of these newer cities. The world itself is measured in years, but collections of years are measured in ages. Ages are divined by clerics and gods and star movements to determine 
when a significant enough event has happened in the world that there are now there is now a precedent right to measure a new age there has been a significant enough development to set one set of years apart from another mm -hmm. and about 200 years ago from the start of this campaign roughly was the end of the fourth age and basically this arcane plane was sundered with um, almost a phylactery of souls that found their way into the weave and bounced back. A um, lot of bad things that happened, and all of a sudden the gods put the crack down on who exactly can access this, where they can access it from, and just started paying a little bit more attention to the guys that were looking for eternal life. Um, but it all started from this wizard, right? Who, there were five cities kind of close to one another, and one of them was, uh, completely destroyed, uh, at the end of the fourth age by, by this infestation of creatures who, who were creating this arcane sundering. And with the destruction of this city and the big bad guy completed, um, this wizard wound up rebuilding it and thought, okay, that took a lot of work, but now this city's brand new. I built homes for people. I built places of work for people. I created such purpose in life. I'm going to continue doing this. And so he created a number of artificial cities. One was basically just a, uh, a Colosseum city where he could go there, uh, for, or where anyone could go there for sports, and basically, it's um, basically international competitions between city states or nations who can go there to compete in standardized games. Um, once that was there, a lot of people started going to these games. So he created Innsbury, um, which is basically just hotel town, um, slightly off mm -hmm. this accessible peninsula. Once people were there, he created a geographic center for the continent to actually be measured off of because he didn't want it to mm -hmm. just grow on coast to coast. He wanted to put something kind of in the middle, so he measured it out, um, as well as two new ports. So this way, everyone could go out and explore and basically just creating these new industries within the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A big thing he used to help this was actually an idea I had the second I found out about him. I knew I wanted them in the game, but I needed a way to introduce them. These were the Warforged. An important mm -hmm. stipulation in the way I will refer to them from here on out is that they were not forged for war. Yeah. They were forged They're for forged a number of purposes, exploration, construction, um, as well as sort of a, a national guard, right? There are town guards. There mm -hmm. are uh, city guards outside these walls. Um, cities have kind of militias. No one really has a military. But with the creation of these cities, they don't have militias, but they do have personalized police forces. But this wizard brings them all together and says, if we can pool our resources, we might be able to prevent another destruction yeah. of an entire city at a mm -hmm. time, another sundering of the ages for millennia to come. Yep. If I collect taxes... I can create the Peacekeeper Legion. Yeah. And they will offer a great many benefits to your cities, which um, took 
took quite a bit of actually selling because these cities were city-states. Everyone was very independent, especially since there was a large racial divide between them. Wollenbach is a dwarven, mm-hmm. and Demion is uh, elven. Mm-hmm. Uh, Feridillion is kind of this hodgepodge, especially since it was rebuilt. All the artificial cities are meant to become this hodgepodge and sort yeah. of integrate the races together. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, basically the introduction of these Peacekeeper Legions required absolutely insane enchantments and production ability, which this guy found how to do through mana. So basically there are mana production sites hidden over the world question mark mm-hmm. uh, our players i'm sure will soon find out but have been used to create these peacekeeper legions so 200 years goes by the continent continues to develop um, many many more towns spring up uh, arcane prevalence uh, becomes a huge thing right mm-hmm. all these artificial cities especially had massive libraries built into them not really filled with anything, but a huge industry that came out of that was spellbook transcribers, people who could take the information that existed and then write, you know, 25 copies of a book. And those would go into libraries all across the continent. And hopefully this means that magic is not so hard for people to learn, right? Even being a second level wizard in the world before, you were still pretty insane compared to the average person. And that was, there's a huge divide between the quality of life of someone who can cast Goodberry and someone who relies on a harvest and the blessing of the gods in order to put food on their table. Mm-hmm. So these wizards and artificers are a huge thing. Multiple industries came out of this. Florea himself, before the start of this campaign, was a spellbook transcriber, which mm-hmm. to me is very cool. Um, the Bakudo are the uh, are sort of this underground agency who deals in illegitimate question mark copies of these spell books. Um, they are admittedly sort of the black market of first copies. Um, so I really liked that. And Balios is from Endymion, which is this massive el- elven stained glass hub of artificery which is very cool but they're all sort of outcasts from societies in certain ways and one day they all meet and find themselves in the town of Innsbury Hotel City just sort of staying there relaxing from their previous adventures getting an introduction to this brand new world that they're all just about to explore and they find this bounty board bounties are very very common in the world because with this arcane prevalence, most people, most people, I don't know, push their tasks onto others. There's always work to be done. It's not really bounty as in bounty hunting. Bounty hunting. It's freelance work. So they find yeah. their way to this bounty board, and as it turns out, there's sort of this health claim amongst all these other papers that have been put up for a rat outbreak in the town of Breakwood, Mm -hmm. which is very, very far to the north. Um, This bounty looks hastily written, but offers a meager to them now, but at the time, a significant amount of gold. 
And so they decide gold. to pack up. Yeah, indeed. For 43 rats. Approximately one yeah. gold per rat. Yep. For you guys. Good exchange, right? Approximately one gold per rat, which they found out later. But, um, yeah, this game also did start at level one because low-level combat is important. So they find their way to this very, very northern village of Breakwood and find that the entire city has burned to the ground. Bodies are laying strewn about the place, uh, their personal belongings scattered everywhere, most of the bodies rotting, only but the faint flicker of ash and the persistent pungent odor of smoke lingers in the air. And that town was actually the byproduct of my introduction to DMing, which was a one-shot I ran where everyone was a level zero NPC and I controlled the rats. Mm -hmm. As these characters died, I just marked them on the map. So I crowdsourced my first D&D encounter mm -hmm. from other players just by taking notes of what they did. So they come into this town and it's littered with bodies and items. They find gold on these bodies. Um, and they get to uncover the story of all of these backstories that these players had generated for themselves and who all perished within this town. All except for one, whose name was Edwin, who was a very successful, basically, meth farmer to the west of town. Yeah. <laughs> and as they move through this town, collecting on gold, killing rats, they find their way to this farmer, um, decide that they need a way back. Wait, also, I played in this original one shot. And I played, I played a halfling called Balgruf, and <laughs> and 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 Balgruf actually went into the cellar where all these rats came from, got under a barrel, and just kept like pushing the barrel up, stabbing them, and putting the barrel down, so none of them ever had the chance to hit him. I swear to God, I killed like eighty rats or something like that, and they just kept spawning. And so eventually, Balgruf was just like this and he left and so i think there i think balgriff survived did he survive barry balgriff did survive along wow. with one other character you two were the ones who wrote the bounties but basically that's how you guys gained your first level and you set out as adventures upon the world looking back at your town burning behind you mm -hmm. we were just like so that was this. those sort of introductions which are just great character leads as a dm to use yeah. for later right um i always love those little trails to to sort of leave linger and develop into side stories that i can expose to other players later on but they move through this town they meet edwin Edwin is trying to protect his property, shoots a few cross bolts, but is lazy and also methed out. So Phaleos <laughs> robs him of all of his gold, being a rogue, and everyone else decides to quote-unquote borrow his horses. Yep. As the party is riding these horses back uh, about halfway across the continent, halfway there, they discover this cultish ritual happening in a place just off, just off the, the actual main trail. Um, to this northern part of the continent. And they see this cleric who um, who is standing over this mangled feminine corpse just take this spear and chop her arm off entirely. And you can see that the arm was like completely cut up from this fishing line that had been wrapped around it and just flayed the flesh from bone. And, you know, um, 
basically the story was she asked for a healer. This guy's not a healer. He's an artificer. He's like, I can't fix your arm, but I can make it robot. Yep. And so that sort of introduced like one of the body horror aspects of artificery, right? One of the first notions of this idea that becoming super really isn't all that super. The process itself is actually pretty unsuper. Mm-hmm. Um, but she does. Um, so the party, not exactly sure what's going on because this is a hasty artificery ritual and it was quite bloody. Um, mm-hmm. Burst in, stop these people. Uh, that girl does not get her arm, but um, she is pretty frustrated with that because now she is armless, mm-hmm. even though she is healed. And sort of out of spite, walks along, uh, walks alongside the party for a long, long time. But just as they get outside the the village of Incenver, one of these peacekeepers meets them as a thunderstorm is brewing in the distance. His bright red cloak waving in this uh, storm that's beginning to create these large gusts of wind as lightning crackles behind him. Very aesthetic. Mm-hmm. And so the party isn't exactly sure what he's doing there. So this um, sort of tube pops up off his shoulder and it shoots a ruby at them. And the ruby is a ruby of message. And it says, you have my permission to kill. Mm-hmm. And so they are understandably confused and prepare to do battle with this uh, peacekeeper. Um, mm-hmm. The peacekeeper is doing pretty well for himself. Uh, but... Not well enough that the insults cease. In fact, it was Florea who challenged him to fight like a man. No, no, I would not have said fight like a man. <laughs> it wasn't that. It was something along the lines there of There is it, but no way that you could have ever response. convinced Florea to commit to saying fight like a man. There, yeah, <laughs> not fight like a man, but it was something it was something similar to that because I specifically remember his response was, Okay, I'll fight like two. And so he oh, threw okay. his shield on the ground, which became um, sort of this uh, arcano-mechanical scorpion, and joined the battle with him. He sacrificed a little bit of his AC for a lot of damage, and also gaining some of the action economy back in his favor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it started going really, really well for this peacekeeper, until one of the first major instances of creativity in this game was exploited where as um, as some of his armor is blasted off through flavor on one of these attacks, um, his mana core is visible inside his chest plate. Mm-hmm. That being an accessible item, uh, Florea catapults it out of his chest. With the assistance with of everybody successful, else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a successful spell casting ability check of 28 absolutely rips this core out of the creature um it crumbles um the creature explodes as it was supposed to but that was just one of those times where you guys managed to cut through a ton of hit points mm-hmm. by using your brains um something i've always been very proud of something that's very very hard to plan for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so after that this uh this messenger appears this guy teleports in out of nowhere. He looks very, very tired. He carries a large hammer. Um, he identifies himself as Messenger Roth and immediately teleports you all into the Feridelian Palace, the Palace of the Commodus, which is where you guys met Ronan and Solara. 
Mm-hmm. And over the course of this time, Solara just says, hey, um, I need some non-government officials to go to this island for me. And just look around and sort of tell me what you see, and I'll pay you anything you want in order to do so. And so everyone tells her what they want. She, being the Commodus, um, basically the head of wealth and power for one of the only bound continents in the world, uh, one of the very first countries, of course, agrees to oblige uh, on completion. And they walk through this city, and they can walk through the different racial districts of it because, again, Fair Deal is one of the first racially integrated cities. And they stack themselves up for the fight ahead. They meet meet some dwarves. They meet some elves. But um, one of the first ties into a backstory was when they went to Crook's Parlor, um, and it was basically... I've never understood what exactly the Thieves' Guild is, because it's always seemed like a wonderful idea to actually make a guild of thieves. So, there is the stereotypical thief bar hidden beneath hidden beneath this very classy winery. And sure enough, this gold dragonborn um, opens the door and recognizes Phileos and is like, oh yeah, you know, get down here. And, um, so they go down into this like now very, very seedy establishment where the walls are covered with um, rewards of uh, successful heists, right? There's dragon skulls, there's swords, there's like gold pieces stuck to the wall, kind of like uh, dollar bills and real bars. Um, people hang their bounties on the wall to see who can be worth the most. There's a very shoddy table right at the front door um, with a sleeping with a sleeping elf in it that says legal advice. Um, but <laughs> something I was very proud of in that bar was the, the use of ring gates. Yes. And at the center oh. of each table, there's a ring gate. Um, and all of these ring gates lead back to one, which leads to this circular display of booze behind the bar. So you deposit your gold and it flips through. Now gravity is reversed and it flips into... Um, it just flips onto the table, and then you reach down into the table, which is up out of the bar, grab your bottle, and bring it through. So that was very cool. Phileos um, got a, a very nice bow by trading off the money he stole from Edwin. And so then, um, with with full bellies and mild hangovers, they decide to meet Solara down at the shipyard the next day. And One of the things they notice is this massive tarped off area and they can hear like welding behind it and huge clanging which in a shipyard is not necessarily uncommon but ships are still made out of wood which is strange and she says oh yeah don't worry about that just cool cool commodus projects but then they meet virion this tabaxi ship captain and he's got this um airship um called the dapper citadel uh, dapper citadel Mm -hmm. of course i can't believe i forgot yeah and they do this with the peacekeeper assigned to them by solara called the dapper gentleman um he is a seven foot tall shield guardian with parts that they had collected from their fight out in the woods and solara had put it together behind the scenes and then given it to them 
And so they get on this airship and she just says, go to this island, um, I'll pay you after. And it's a little rushed and a little confusing, but nonetheless, our brave heroes uh, carry on. And they get to this island and they see this massive, massive pink quartz crystal mountain just rise out of the center of the ocean almost. And, you know, as they're gazing in beauty, all of a sudden, this ship powered by mana begins to falter sputter of sorts as if the fuel is running out and surely enough um with some successful arcana checks and creative uses of detect magic um, they see this stream of magic that is sort of tying um or tethering this boat to somewhere on this island and it's draining all the mana out of it um but the, the boat winds up crashing on shore, completely destroyed. Virian somehow survives and um, continues on with the party for a little bit. The island is infested with Remraz, which is food for a creature that they would meet later. Um, but they continue up onto this island, and it seems fairly, fairly barren. Um, they do see some magical streams here and there and some clearings carved out, but nothing really of until they decide to make camp in this clearing for the afternoon, regain their spell slots. And after a while, they hear this strange murmuring in the bushes, and sure enough, two guards who were wondering where this tower came from um, get noticed by, by our brave heroes, and so they run off and immediately return with uh, what is statted as a warforged titan. And so... They're riding on its shoulders, it comes into town just swinging and wailing, but what's interesting about mana is how amorphous it is. And I just have a roll table for spells that it can manifest as. You roll for level, then you roll for um, basically class, and then you roll for what spell within that list it might be. So this... So exposure to mana creates these very, very randomized effects. And I got that from sort of this uncontrollable um, uncontrollable idea from Prismatic Burst or pris uh, Prismatic Spray. <clears throat> Just this sort of random generation of evocation magic, but... To me, that never made much sense, so I just made it all kinds of magic, where detonating a mana bomb might just be one big greater restoration. You know, you never know. And that's part of the fun out of it. But they destroy this creature, and they wonder what it's doing there. They explore this clearing a little bit more, and um, find these illusory rocks hidden on the north side. And they see this strange metal sphere bound in chains with these... Um, copper boxes uh, attached all around it and this big central porthole and these 10 braided cables hanging off um, hanging off this sphere, five at the top and five on the bottom. Um, in all actuality, that's a beholder with basically mana slots on it. So uh, a creature could put in one of these um, one of these mana tubes and use a beholder's inherent uh, natural eye rays, to generate, um, to generate this mana and power their creations. But this is, um, this is in a chamber called incubation. 
Within incubation are these other tunnels that lead around the islands, and there's um, a number of other chambers, but they wind up going down into these tunnels, and they're very, very hard to navigate. There's this black slime on the walls and these huge conical cuts that, like, spiral around the actual caves. Um, they make it through some traps and wind up finding another one of these Warforged Titans within the tunnels and a dead guy next to it. Um, they wander around for a little bit more. They find themselves at um, the edge of a lava pool. As they walk onto this very narrow bridge over this room of complete lava, a huge quadrupedal creature jumps out, and this turns out to be a rock wyvern from the elemental wyvern generator that uh, Alan and I, but mostly Alan, <laughs> made together, which can is basically a DIY dragon, but yeah. of course lesser. Mm -hmm. And it randomly generates a number of genetic and phenotypical characteristics and a stat block representative of these. So if you ever wanted a diverse set of monsters, I would highly recommend that you go give that a look. I can post the link to that somewhere here as well. Probably in the, Absolutely. either we'll the game the notes. Link in the description. Yeah, exactly. I said okay. game notes. Oh my gosh, that just shows how much I'm into the D&D &D stuff. No, in, in, into the, the show notes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this creature jumps out and starts screaming about purpose, what they're doing here. Um, their purpose is kind of that they would that they were told to at this point, and they're doing it for a lot of money. This creature doesn't really seem to like that and says, I'll show you purpose. Fight me. Oh my god. Um... Again, the player's creativity has to be applauded in instances like this because them being like, what, level five or six mm -hmm. dunked on my 14th level spellcaster. Mm -hmm. um, and and mm -hmm. I do mean dunked. <laughs> he could not get a hit in edgewise. It, what, the dice were not in his favor and the creativity of the players was just absolutely overwhelming. I mean, he was decimated. But before he died, um, sort of receded into the lava pools to lick his wounds and basically said, I will see you later. Mm -hmm. And they continued into these tunnels and they found this large, large chamber absolutely littered with damage. I mean, from scorch marks to what looked like cracks in, in the stone walls to these uh, electrical patterns where it looked like lightning bolts have hit from uh, porous sections where acid had hit. Um, basically, it looked like this room was sort of like a miniature coliseum, but also a training room because uh, the way you access this is by jumping off the cliff and the floor is enchanted with Featherfall. Wink. Um, the, the guy who designed this uh, absolutely hated Featherfall. <laughs> um, it was actually an old character of mine back when I didn't know Featherfall was a reaction. Yeah. I thought it was an action and I never thought I always went into every fight thinking, why would I plan to fall <laughs> until I inevitably fell and took a ton of damage, but still I never took it as a point of pride. So um, in this instance, I made the floor enchanted with Featherfall as sort of a callback to, to old instances like that. Um, but in the center of this room was this strange crystal, like an actual pink quartz crystal, and... Um, it was Florea who touched it and took psychic damage and heard this very mottled, muddled voice um, 
speaking to him and couldn't get the voice to say anything afterwards. But at this point, I was, I was, I kept trying to test the player's creativity. And at this point, I was, I was absolutely ready. I knew what I needed to do. So I basically took all of the player's stats, upped them three levels, and then had them fight themselves as doppelgangers. And I thought, oh, this is great. Now I can make it 1v1. I've got the action economy back. Absolutely not. Um, I think it was the second round into the fight, um, Florea, who still had this um, ejected mana core. Yep, from the original that dude. That Warforged we talked about. Uh, the, peacekeeper, the Peacekeeper, please, we Barry. talked about earlier. I know, I'm still <laughs> slipping on that, too. From the Peacekeeper we talked about earlier, this central power unit, threw it at the crystal. And they're still not exactly sure why what happened happened, but basically... Um, it started releasing spell slots, and it released all of the spell slots it had within the fraction of a second and exponentially more per second. And that represented itself as a sun. The doppelgangers were gaining some of their spell slots from this crystal, and so they all together start clutching their heads as their, uh, as their characteristics begin to fade and they just become... They basically disintegrate back as the spell, as this crystal's "quote unquote" concentration is broken. Um, but as this sun grows and is growing very, very quickly, it, it captures one of their doppelgangers and just completely melts it. They realize that they are inevitably just, you know, up a certain creek without a paddle. And as they, uh, as they are finding themselves up this creek, the, the sun begins to grow, as hydrogen reactions do, and, oh, there goes the paddle. So they begin running back down one of these tunnels they saw off to the side, and all of a sudden these creatures around them start appearing, all with these strange symbols um, on their shoulders, um, three drow with pitch black capes, um, and they almost instantaneously perish. Um, a goliath and an orc uh, with similar-esque tattoos who uh, basically Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers clap each other's <laughs> arms and flex their biceps and then try to stop the sun. And they last a round, but also pretty much instantly die. Um, it was Phalios who cast Orb of... Do you remember what that spell was, Phalia? Ooh, it was uh, Odalith's... Odaluk's... Yes. In- yeah. Resilient yes. Sphere. Yes, yeah. that's right. But cast one of those. And they are now looking... Um, they are now looking out the sphere as solar winds rip past uh, the sphere. Um, the This orange glow encases them, but on the inside of the sun, they can see this dazzling array of magical effects. Um Every kind of beam spell, every kind of evocation spell, even healing magic strands uh, flying past them, necromantic skulls, everything is on the inside of the sun. And all of a sudden, this uh, giant silver claw reaches down through the ceiling and um, and grabs them, and then this silver dragonborn and this four-legged creature from earlier... Um, 
begin to try and cast a spell um, within this sun as this large silver hand plucks them up and out of this tunnel, and they can find themselves in the clutched grasp of an ancient silver dragon. They're flying above this island. They look behind them, and they see that the sun has now protruded out of the surface. It's just eviscerating trees. I mean, it's burning an entire crater within this island. I mean, it's huge, and it doesn't look like it's stopping. Until a central... Gotta... Got to remember the exact sequence of events that occurred. Ah, yes, a beam came down from the sun, the one up in the sky, to this sun. And almost intercepting it was at the very, very top of this mountain, this uh, lightning bolt, this huge um, staggered array of plasma just shooting towards the center of this solar storm on the ground. But as these two beams collide perpendicular to each other, uh, the lightning bolt turns to glass and just instantaneously explodes. And then these huge chunks of glass and just this complete impenetrable field of uh, minute glass shards just shred this dragon's wings and they all plummet, but... Uh, at the last second, she does tap the sphere and manage to teleport them to the top of the mountain. And they see her at the last second just twirling, um, just bleeding to the ground. And um, they see this beam from the sun up above uh, strike down into the solar storm and then recede back up into itself. And then there's just a steaming, smoking black crater left on this island. So they're now at the top of the mountain. They get a very, very stern talking to about who they are and what they're doing here by the Silver Dragon, as well as this four-legged creature in the Silver Dragonborn who have managed to survive. Half-Dragon. And they all teleport away. Half-Dragon, yes. Not Dragonborn, Half-Dragon. And they manage to teleport away. And they just teleport away. Well, so our, uh, our heroes crawl up over a ledge to this cliff and find themselves in this very run-down encampment. It seems like some kind of hippie camp almost is the closest thing. The tents are yeah. all organically <laughs> fashioned. People wear burlap. Um, there doesn't seem to be many personal effects that aren't shared amongst everyone. And uh, everything that is shared is of used or lower quality. Um, but they wind up talking to some people around here. And all of these people have been physically disfigured in some way. Um, some from obvious battle, others from birth defects. Um, they meet these five creatures up here, one of them who is an eight-year-old tiefling uh, with very, very burned skin and mottled hair who calls herself Astaline. And um, Astute listeners Fale might remember that from what, Phaleos? Astaline is my mother that died. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, of course, or possibly, because this girl is like, I'm eight. I don't know who you are. You're nice, <laughs> but you're a little weird. Stranger danger! Um, stranger danger! <laughs> yeah, stranger danger indeed. Um, but they have dinner. Yeah, they mm -hmm. have dinner with this guy who calls himself the Jarl, and it's um, these meager yet modest portions of potatoes and venison that they find from around the island. Um, fortunately, uh, they don't really hunt Remoraz. They're uh, not quite stupid enough to do that, <laughs> but um, yeah, they wind up uh, 
exploring exploring the top of this mountain and the surrounding areas for quite a while. Um, Florea thinks he's been here before from um, old archways uh, that lay rusted in the, in the ground a few hundred feet away from this clearing that looked like they used to be part of some massive superstructure over um, this uh, very top part of the mountain that he uh, remembers, which is strange. Um, and overall, I, I should very specifically clarify, in the center of this clearing, there is a large 10-foot-tall um, blue quartz crystal surrounded by competing uh, smaller 5-foot-tall pink quartz crystals within the ground. And they're on top, and everyone's trying to figure out what's going on, and the Jarl says, hey, I've got this noon ritual. You guys can sit in if you plan on staying here for a while. We'll let you in on some of our customs. And, of course, the Jarl is in this wheelchair because he's missing one, uh, missing one stump at the leg. He's missing most of the fingers on both of his hands. Uh, um, and, uh, unbeknownst to the players yet, does have these cuts all over his body. And so begins this ritual and covers himself in purple energy and manifests two mage hands that overlay his real ones and... Um, this arcane flows over all his missing body parts. He stands up out of the wheelchair and he has this very, very ornate flowered sword um, on his back. And um, this uh, very, very uh, disfigured Triton is kneeling and everyone's around these crystals and just sort of watching intently and praying. Um, but this black ooze that they saw in the tunnels begins to seep out of the ground and envelop this Triton arcane bands lash this titan to two of the pink crystals and the jarl just starts wiping this energy um uh wiping this energy like on the crystal just tracing his hands over the blue surface um and eventually a face pops out of the blue crystal and another one and another one and another one and he runs his hands over all of these faces before grabbing one almost like in the mouth uh grabbing it by like what would be through the mouth to the back of the spine and rips the face out and all of a sudden has this like very very sickly looking corpse on the ground and he just starts hacking it up and smearing flesh onto this black slime on this triton's body and then it's they just gruesome. leave it there yeah it is very gruesome and then when they're done they're like okay cool uh what do you guys want to do now <laughs> and so everyone, uh, everyone at the top of this mountain just decides to go to the garden as this guy is laying there uh, covered in this black sludge and basically like ground up flesh. And the characters are, our heroes are like, what the hell? <laughs> Ronan if, got if real I, mad. If I may speak for you guys. I mean, I, honestly, but yeah, after- Ronan, I think was super mad. What was Phileos thinking? Because uh-huh. we were actually, Astaline was kind of scared. Yeah, she was. She was very standoffish, afraid with what was going on. I know just mm-hmm. I remember Ronan was very upset specifically. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like Phileos and Florea were shifting their focus to making sure that she would not retaliate in this moment because she was upset mm-hmm. with what was going on. He, rather. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So, um, these creatures begin um, basically just mulling about, going about their business on top of this mountain within this clearing. Um, our heroes go around and talk to some of them and try to figure out what's going on. But lo and behold, by the end of the day, 
they see this faint black speck on the horizon. Um, as this uh, day continues on and and slowly begins to turn to evening, this black slot or this black dot gets bigger. But they see this is indeed not a cloud merely aligning with it off the horizon. It is just one big huge plume of black smoke. Um, it, it's still miles and miles away, but they can. Uh, but they can see it'll be here um, in about eight hours. Sixteen. Well, yeah, that that was a bit of a retcon. It was mm-hmm. supposed to be sixteen hours before the final fight because it got there in eight. Yeah. Um. So so it did get there in eight, and as it does, this um, they uh, our characters begin making preparations for whatever the hell it could be. Um, everyone at the top of the mountain is super scared and upset. And start talking about this old battle uh, with a guy named Svijay who looks a lot like Florea um, and acts kind of acts like him too, who left um, many or a few years ago. Um, well, no, actually, it was everyone thought that he died in this battle, but only the Jarl knew that he left to save everyone because they find the wreckage of another Warforged Titan at the top of this mountain find out that it had been there before looking for Svijay and had been sent there by a guy. <laughs> and, um, Backstory man! <laughs> and it had been sent there by Backstory man. And um, so everyone was understandably super scared. Svijay knew um, what it was there for and Svijay left but didn't want to tell everyone goodbye so he just basically arranged for his death to be faked. Um... So uh, everyone starts freaking out that, oh my god, this guy is back, and now he sent a massive flying ship here, and um, everyone just begins making preparations for it. None of these people have formal military training, and so there's some creative instances there of um, Ronan's military expertise coming in, how to prepare for an attack, how to set up ambush positions. Um, Phaleos... Phaleos and Florea using their exceptional wizardry skills to craft uh, massive battlements and um, create barricades and um, snare traps. Cannot forget snare. those. Eventually, the ship comes, and this is no this is no average airship. This is basically an inverted aircraft carrier, five hundred feet long. Most airships don't exceed one hundred and twenty. This is absolutely insane in terms of scale of magic items that the world has ever seen, but it's carrying this very strange-looking metal tube um, that would be on the deck of an aircraft carrier, but it's upside down, so it's hanging there, and as soon as the ship arrives, it anchors itself with two, like, massive harpoons that sink into the island, and then this giant metal tube falls, and as it does, it begins to writhe and look and lull a little bit, begins moving, and the players can see it's not rigid and looks strange, but as it's dropped from a thousand feet in the air, it crashes onto the ground and just explodes into parts. It's now just a pile of metal. Mm-hmm. Surely enough, Solara appears um, right behind the party on a teleportation circle that had been left at the top of this clearing by Backstory Man 2! <laughs> and, um... And she appears with Roth and another 
massive peacekeeper. And Roth was the this teleportation one, guy from earlier. Yep. Yeah. That was the dude with the big hammer from earlier in this description um, yep. where it was the guy who was teleporting everyone around and brought us to the palace in the first place. Yeah. Roth is, Roth's whole thing is to teleport. Um, but Solara shows up and she's wearing this very, very pitch black cloak reminiscent of the of the ones whom the warriors that defended them against the solar storm war um in the tunnels below just the day prior and uh, and um she's wearing this cloak but this one has the hood down and uh ronan can see that it's stained with blood um that cloak is actually super cool. Uh, that's a cloak of a displacer mage, which I made from a displacer beast. So that never re like really got used because spellcasters don't make a whole lot of attack rolls. But I just kind of wanted to put that out there in case everyone, anyone ever wanted to use something like that. That I, I thought it was cool. But she's also wearing this um, very black uh, muscular armor. And you can see these hydraulic coils and braided hoses that wrap around her form like a muscular structure would. And that is Arcan Organic Armor. And um, she's carrying this very ornate basket hilt rapier on her hip, but the basket hilt flows into uh, an inverse basket hilt, which makes up uh, this... Uh, hemispherical guard to the blade that actually like guards the wrist and wraps around in this uh, very nice fashion. And so she gets there and says, Oh, this is so cute. Um, what have you guys found out? And so talks to the party a little bit. Yeah. Um, kind of gives a little bit of introduction as to why she's there. Um, and I did so much planning. It's hard for me to separate what she talked about when, my mind kind of turned off and was yeah. only in one continuous mode. <laughs> Do you want us to take over from here? You, yeah. Why don't yeah. you guys talk about what transpired from the moment that she first appeared um, right after her ship did? And this is where you would go back and listen to the rest of the other episode. <laughs> so I hope you guys enjoyed this extra little bonus episode. I know it may have been a little tiny bit more rough around the edges than the rest of our stuff, but nonetheless, I thought it was good to just separate it out here just in case anybody wanted to listen to all of it. So I hope you guys are having a wonderful, wonderful day, and we'll see you again soon. Bye.